1: Hey, everyone, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors, and this is our third annual NCUA Letter to Credit Unions on Exam Supervision, Supervisory Priorities or Exam Priorities, the le- the letter, as I like to call it, which comes out every January. And I'm excited to have uh, two of my team members here that, uh, that I've worked with at NCUA for a long time and have helped me here on the podcast and helped help me the clients that we yeah. have uh, throughout credit unions, and uh, I want to introduce them. If you haven't; they haven't been on the podcast unless it was a rerun that I, I reran because it was so good. They haven't been on the podcast the last couple of months. And uh, first up, we're joined by Steve Farr. Steve, could you give yourself a little bit of an intro on what you
0: did at NCUA for those? Oh, great, I, yeah, glad to be back for the year three. Interesting year last year, and we'll see what happens next. That has this coming year. But uh, I spent thirty-two years in NCUA. And half of it was working in region, the Western region. And most of that was as a problem case officer, which was really good to get well-rounded and strengthen operations. Then I spent the last half of my career in the central office, working on problem resolution on a more national basis. And then towards the end of my career, I was the vice president of the central liquidity facility and worked a long time on the risk-based capital role. A long time on the risk-based capital rule, got it ready for
1: prime time, and then took politics took a little while longer after you retired for basically that rule to get approved as you had had drafted it before before you left. So and Steve and I worked together at all, many of those stops he mentioned there. And anyway, so uh, with that, I'm going to uh, pivot to Todd Miller. Todd, could you give a little intro of your background at, at NCUA when you were no, at man. NCUA? Didn't
2: realize until just now, but I beat Steve by two years. I was with NCUA for 34 years, roughly the same times as Steve. I retired in 2021. During my career, the first 10 years, you can say I was an examiner and a problem case officer. The middle 10 years, I was a capital market specialist from 2000 to 2010. And then the last 11 years of my career, I spent it as the director of special actions, supervising problem case officers in capital markets. Around 2010, that was the Great Recession. So I had a couple of very busy years there as the director of special actions. Unfortunately, there's a few credits in the Western region didn't survive that. We conserved uh, quite a few of them. One of them returned to the members. So that was quite a good experience to be able to fix a credit and return it to
1: his members. But I had 34 good years with NCUA and enjoyed every bit of it. You and me both, and you beat me by four months. I was 33 years and eight months. So you are the the longevity winner at, at NCUA, at least for us three, at least for us three. All right, guys, there are seven priorities. Well, five plus two other mentions that, that we're going to walk through here today compared to the last couple of years. And for the most part, we'll walk through them in order of what they're listed at in the NCUA letter, although we may uh, pull interest rate risk up uh, for a, a second. A discussion along with liquidity, but first out of the gate in NCUA's letter is credit risk. And as a reminder of where that was previously, last year, credit risk was listed third. And uh, in 2022, it was rated first in, in order. And in order doesn't necessarily mean everything, but it does mean something because you want to put first what's most important. Number one, 2024 NCUA's priorities for the examination is credit risk. What are your thoughts relative uh, to that topic and how it relates to uh, credit unions for 2024?
0: I, I'll take a look. I looked at some of the numbers and the trends definitely show a weakening of credit quality, which was expected as inflation started to impact people's income and decisions that they had to make. The, another important item is to start looking at credit risk is. in the in the opening of the letter they talk about their concern about the increase in assets in camel three and above and that is you can generally can be reflective of anytime you have increases in delinquency it's going to affect camel codes and then there were there's a kind of a fairly sharp increase in the provision for loss expense which would have been of course affecting earnings so That part is also part of what's caused this concern with the credit unions, uh, with the uh, camel codes of uh, three and above, especially some of the larger ones. But you just can't ignore that so many of the the loan types show trends in increasing delinquency, credit cards being one, and junior liens. The kind of the unsecured uh, products are showing the most weakness that I can see. There's
2: a couple more pieces to that prior to this on- podcast. I went on Fred's and I pulled down some numbers just on income growth, median income growth and where inflation is. And really for the last, pretty much since June of 2021, consumers are getting behind. While unemployment is low, if you look at income growth, it's actually lagging behind inflation. Realistically, for two and a half years, consumers are in a worse position on a median. And I think it probably affects the lower income people, maybe higher than folks in those higher income tiers. And there's always a lag effect to this. If you look at quarterly numbers last year, March actually looked better than year end. So all that deterioration Steve talked about has really happened from March to December. If you look at the references that NCUA made there in the attachments to the letters, they're all the referral back to credit risk fundamentals. There's stuff that was published at or before that last recession. So they're really directing people, hey, let's go back to credit risk management fundamentals. They have a right to be concerned. And we go for two years and consumers are falling further behind inflation. And then you combine that with rising interest rates, it's going to be harder on borrowers and unemployment. The press tells you it's all time lows. That's kind of true. It's actually been itching up during 2023. And there's really a wide disparity around the country. You've got places that are at 1.9%. And then you've got other states that are hitting five and a half. Our large population states, California, New York, Texas, those guys are in the fours. Behind that one gross number, there's little bubblings of problems here and there around the country. And NCUA has a right to be scared of credit risk. We've all read articles of what's going on with commercial real estate and potential vacancies there and a crumbling there. That's what causes the agency large chunks of money is deteriorating credit risk. A little fraud here and there, but credit risk is the big one. And there's lots of signs that the consumers are struggling.
1: And I think um, Todd, in a call with a client, recently you might have talked about how this it, it was the sand states in oh eight oh nine, right and recessions don't happen uniformly and so some of the numbers you just cited would link to that that we're going to start pressure points in different areas and then another thing that was touched on I, I was listening to economists walking today and they were saying that actually unemployment rate went up when you adjust for those that are dropping out of the workforce right and so You've got all of those different different things interacting. And then uh, piggybacking off of some things Steve said tied to delinquency going up and different things. Uh, I, I think about how uh, delay for implementing Cecil was something that politically was, Cecil was talked about for several years and it was delayed, delayed, delayed. And then by the time it all came forward to having to, to book that. You also had other real issues. So it was kind of like a double whammy. And how much of this is Cecil and how much of it is delinquency and, and all that? I don't know. And I don't, I'm don't. i not expecting you to know those numbers there. But you've kind of got all these different things mixing together the, and the condition of borrowers and the, the lower-income folks that are impacted by inflation, et cetera. It's, it's going to be an interesting 2024, but the, I don't expect to see the numbers getting better anytime soon in that regard. Cecil has been an interesting comment because there's the a ratio
2: on the FPR of your allowance to delinquency right after Cecil in March. That number shot up to like 216%. It was at 126 in December. But then over the course of this year, it's fallen back down to 166 and provision for loan loss expenses have doubled. And so did we overfund Cecil or did we fund Cecil right? And as the years progressed, unions are sitting there underfunded in September. I don't know the answer to that question. It could have been a conservative overfunding of Cecil in that first quarter, and if it wasn't overfunding the first quarter, then we have balance sheets that are underfunded now in September. I don't know which was the true case, but one of those two is true.
1: Well, in that ratio, cover the coverage ratio. If you, I think. That is the is or similar to the coverage ratio, which which reminds me of when Steve and I worked for Dan Murphy when I was a director of special actions and we would brief him on different cases about delinquencies, X percent here, but the allowance is overfunded and it's in this type of loan and the next one would come in and it would be a different type of loan and the and everybody was saying, but the allowance is adequate. And it was all over the map as far as delinquency and the allowance. And so Dan just said, you guys come in here and tell me, I just look at the allowance and I look at delinquency and I compare the two. And, and I think, I think we coined it the Murphy ratio at the time. So that be, it made, if there was enough in the allowances, there wasn't delinquency because it was a, a simple benchmark. All right. Anything else on credit risk guys?
2: No. Return no. to fundamentals. We look at clients. One of the things we seen routinely amongst clients last year is NCUA wanted people to justify their concentration limits. We've seen that over and over. It's concentration risks that cause the agency money or cost agency money and insurance losses. And that's one thing we've seen across many of our clients last year is they wanted justification for those concentration limits.
1: I'll tell you so much so that the last, I did a solo podcast saying the the letter would normally come out this week. Here's what I think is going to be on it. And my prediction was concentration risk was going to pop back on because of how much we've seen credit unions uh, being asked about that. I'm, it's, it's not. All right. So. Topic number two in order of NCUA's list is liquidity risk. We've, we've talked a lot about it uh, with clients. We've talked a lot about it on, on the podcast. NCUA has a number two here. They came out with a regulatory alert the week before, which was interesting that they had an alert. And then a week later, they had it in their priorities. And here it is at number two. As a reminder, it was number two last year. And ironically, there were 10 priorities in 2022, and it was not any of the 10 interest rate risk where they may have dabbled into it was tenth on the list in 2022. So it shot up to number two, stayed at number two with a bullet here for 2024. Thoughts on liquidity risk?
2: This is interesting. I I keep a whole bunch of statistics going back to 2000 on credit share structure, on savings rates, different things. Um, earlier, I mentioned with loans, their whole reference is they want to return to fundamentals. I think with balance sheet structures in general, what we're seeing today is a reversion to mean, if you go back to 2005, 2007, 2008, hot money, which I would call borrowings, non-member deposits, certificates, money markets, back then it was roughly 54, 55% of a credit union's balance sheet. And then we got into this period of low rates out of the end of the last recession that lasted all the way through 2022. And things got somewhat muddled. That money fell to as low as 35% of the balance sheet. And then as the Fed started reducing or increasing rates in April of last year, I read a thing a long time ago that people don't really care about rates, so they're insensitive to rates until rates get around 4%, and we're seeing that. So what we've seen in the last year and a half since the Fed started raising rates is this migration from core deposits to certificates. Credit is using borrowed money and non-member deposits to control that marginal cost of funds. It's easier to do that rather than raise rates on the whole thing. As we get to the end, September of 2023, that hot money, borrowed money and CDs and non-member deposits, it's still only 46% of shares. So it's still way less than it was back when we had a normal interest rate environment. I think what we're going to see in NCUA has a right to be nervous about liquidity is we're going to continue to see that migration from core deposits into higher cost shares We're gonna continue to see credit unions using borrowed money and non-member deposits to control that marginal cost of funds. I'm actually somewhat surprised is how well credit unions have been able to keep their interest margins where they were. Given how fast these rates will have risen, they've actually done a fairly good job with that. The other thing that we see that's a little out of the norm, if you look historically from 2000 up until the last two, three years, credit unions' deposit growth was a little faster than the national savings rate. That hasn't been true the last two and a half years. And part of this, we already talked about it. Inflation is rising faster than income rates or growth. But just even at the national savings rate, credit share growth have been behind that. And that's the first time that's happened in a couple of decades. And I think maybe that's a reluctance for them to raise rates or it's just a matter of trying to control that marginal cost of funds. It's one of those unusual types of things. The borrowing and the increase in the borrowings, it certainly made the regulators nervous. We've seen a lot of exam reports that have findings and they're critical of credit gains, liquidity management. Uh, we see a lot of exam reports inferring that there's a whole issue with this rising cost of funds. Even in credit that have kept their interest margins stable, they're still being criticized for that potential increasing cost of funds. So I find that somewhat interesting. It it tells you that examiners are nervous, and and NCUA is nervous that this cost of funds will continue to rise. And I think it will, because we haven't reverted back to that media, that money. Is not where it's at yet on the balance sheet. So I think we're going to see some continued deterioration in those core deposits, probably through the next year. Yeah, we'll see what the Fed does with rates. It's certainly the increase in borrowings and reliance on non-member funds is making the agency nervous. And we, we see it in clients' exam reports. They're getting criticized for that rising cost of funds. They're getting criticized for using borrowed money, um, in some cases, it's deserved. In other cases, it's not. Uh, examiners aren't just going through that whole total analysis process and seeing what's going on with everything. The liquidity is really, really tight, very closely with interest rate risks. It's changes in interest rate risk that started creating all the pressures on everyone's liquidity. Yeah, we went through an unprecedented time over the last 20 months. I think our Fed funds have risen I got it written down here somewhere on one of my sheets. I don't want to wrinkle my paper so and get that involved in the thing, but it's a little over 500 basis points that fed funds have went up since April of 2022 that created an inverted yield curve because long term rates have only went up a couple hundred basis points or a little bit less than that. That's caused the devaluation in credit use assets. You see it very clearly in those gap net gap. Net worth ratios, that has fallen. You see it in the losses on the HTM and AFS portfolios. They're down around 13, 14%. I don't have the number exactly in front of me, but that creates a whole bunch of pressure on institutions and they can't really go sell assets to fund this liquidity. So even the folks that have significant investment portfolios they're unwilling to use them to fund that loan portfolio because they have to recognize those losses. And so with liquidity, they reference that in the letter. They want you to go back and look at that interagency guidance from 2010. They want people shoring up their contingency funding plans. For some credit unions, they dug into parts of their contingency funding plan just to help restructure their balance sheet this year or so. I think the liquidity pressures will continue unless rates fall, those asset valuations are not going to go back up. So there's still going to be a reluctance to sell things. Overall, though, I think you give the industry some kudos, the increase in borrowings. It's just an indication of their managing their cost of funds in marginal cost of funds to the best of their ability. And like I said, overall, I think the industry itself has done fairly well at managing their liquidity and responding to the interest rate risk. And CUA had to do away with their um, extreme risk rating on asset liability management, in part because so many credit unions were hitting it, which means they probably shouldn't have had it in there before to begin with. I guess one thing that we see with our clients, and we see a lot of clients being asked to reduce interest rate risk or change their limits, something maybe that bothers me a little bit, is NCUA is really focused on NEV, but what you don't see in their exam reports is any discussions of the credit's income simulations or liquidity. And a lot of these institutions, they're doing just fine at holding up with keeping their earnings level where they're at. Capital ratios have come down a little bit because of growth, but a lot of credit are doing just fine in terms of managing that net interest income, keeping that net income positive, keeping those asset or capital numbers where they need to be. And so I think NCOA is maybe being a little bit harsh in emphasizing this NEB number, which has definitely went down when rates go up 500. And they're not looking at that income simulation piece, which is also very, very important. And I guess, What makes me nervous is some of the NCUA's guidance, and we see in clients, they want them to reduce interest rate risk without making any changes in interest rate risk assumptions. This yield curve is changing every single quarter. It's really challenging for management. Things they do to make NEV look better today in this invader inverted yield curve could actually cost them a lot of money when that curve comes back to normal. And so I think credit unions you need to really be doing some simulations at different interest rate risks. You need to be able to push back on examiners, I think, a little bit on this emphasis on ABV. What does your income simulation look like? Let's not do something today that's going to cost us a lot of money in the future when rates change again. Certainly some credit user interest rate has gotten excessive, but I think a lot of credit users have also been told their interest rate risk is excessive. And it's probably just fine. And they can weather the storm if they keep their liquidity appropriate and keep their earnings there. The liquidity always becomes a problem when you have poor asset quality and net worth starts falling. But unions keep their capital level and they keep earnings positive. They can generate liquidity if they need it. Um, where they get into trouble when asset quality deteriorates and capital starts deteriorating then that wholesale funding gets taken off the table and you have some more issues. Um, so the credit risk is definitely at the heart of that. That's what causes those things to deteriorate the fastest. Um, but interest rate risk and liquidity, it's just so challenging because of how fast interest rates rose and how the shape of the yield curve changed on them. Certainly there's individual credit having trouble. They can refer to that in the nub, increased number of camel threes, but as an industry, the creditors are actually doing pretty well managing through this challenging environment. Well said,
0: said, and Steve, any thoughts you want to add? Yeah, to I think little little just, uh, one emphasizes one thing and then ask Todd about three other issues. that shouldn't take long. I liked how he talked about when when the creditors are taking action to improve liquidity or interest rate ri or reduce interest rate risk. Some of the responses. Well, they need to be properly analyzed, as Todd talked about, kind of when you're going to take those actions and then make sure that you outline sure. the income, the expenses related to that, and also include that foregone revenue that'd be from those things, because sometimes these short term actions will get the examiner off your back, but they're not a real good long term decision if you document that. At least you're able to respond on that. The other two issues I wanted to bring up with it for discussion is. The increased competition for deposits, which I noted the other regulators had made comments on. And I wanted to get Todd's thoughts real quickly on how he sees that affecting liquidity risk and interest rate risk.
2: Well, you need we've had loan growth and loan growth has continued. It's slowed, but it continues. So the matter of is do you really need those deposits? I would go back first, let's make sure you're pricing your loans and that loan growth is genuine and you're going to get some positive returns on that loan growth. I think the competition for funds is going to continue. Like I said, the savings rate is really low. We've already talked about it. Inflation is still higher than income growth. So you're not seeing a huge growth in disposable income that People that add to savings. There's lots and lots of strategies out there for generating new deposits. A lot of this is new products. You create products. If you go back and look when hot money was 55% of the deposit base, you you had people that were somewhat rate sensitive, but they didn't lock their money up. That was sitting in money market accounts. My wife is one of those. She wants a fair return, but she doesn't really want to lock her money up. She wants to go down to the bank and get it tomorrow. Then you've got these investor type savers. They want very competitive CD rates. They have no problems going from bank A to bank B to credit E and C to credit E and D. They're very rate sensitive money. Those people are probably the people we've seen moving already, but I don't think we have really sorted out that middle tier. It's all in flux. So a lot of this is product development and talking to your members. You know, going out and getting borrowed money or non-member deposits is easy. It's a phone call to break a broker. What's a little bit harder is that organic growth. You need to spend some time building up relationships with your members and asking them for deposits. I guarantee you every credit members have more money that they don't have it. The tricky part is, is I think in this environment, credit have to recognize they're going to have to pay competitive rates to get that. And core deposit growth is not going to be easy. It's a demographic thing. We have more old people going away than we have young people coming up. Usually it's new families and new households. We're creating all that deposit core deposit growth. And we're just not generating those new households anymore at the rate we used to. So it's challenging for credit. Unions. They're gonna have to work at this deposit growth and The core deposit growth, you're going to have to steal it from the competition by having better relationships, better product designs, better websites, all the things young people want. And at the higher end for the people that are rate sensitive, you're going to have to be willing to pay for that. And that really requires your ELCO communities to really balance your loan rates with your deposit rates and understand that the margin is this loan product profitable given what we have to pay for deposits our wholesale funding to fund it. And I think credit unions have done a good job of paying attention to that marginal stuff. They were maybe a little bit slow to raise loan rates. You see most of them are getting those loan rates up there now. I don't really, I don't envy the challenges that credit unions face right now in this competition for deposits. And part of it is the savings rate is low. The pie is not getting big as fast as they need it to get. Like I said, one of the things I commented on is we're at a point where this is the first time in a long time where credit union's deposit growth is lower than that savings rate. I don't know what the numbers look like in banks. 2023 was really good returns for people on the stock market. I don't know how much money that sucked out of the banking and the credit union industry. I'm certain it was some. It's going to be a challenging 2024. And I think if credit union's continue to do what they did, 2023, though, they'll do all right in 2024. But examiners are going to be looking, cash flow forecasts better be good. They're going to look for lots of scenario analysis. They're going to look for you modeling that business plan. We do see, just amongst some of our clients, an increased level of criticism if you don't hit your targets in your business plan. And really, that just means a longer discussion at your Elko in minutes where you're talking about why I don't think in an environment like this, you could hold credits to hitting every metric in their business plan, but credits need to sit down and have some discussions at the al level, so their actions and their decisions are transparent to the examiners. I think that's one thing we see is examiners don't see that transparency, it invites criticism of management. It's still with COVID, the off-site exams, the agency is and they're still going to continue to do offsite what they can. There just seems to be less dialogue between credit and management. And so if things aren't transparent in your committee minutes, board amendments, invite a little bit of criticism from your examiners because they don't seem to be sitting. They take the time to sit down and talk with management about what they did and why. It just doesn't seem to be occurring the way it has in the past. In certain yeah, cases, anyway.
0: Yeah. I think you covered one of my other questions that there is that with all of the change in the interest rates, that a lot of credit unions found themselves outside of policy numbers on, in terms of liquidity measures and ALM measures. And I think you kind of just covered that before I even asked it, and that it's that you, you know, properly document that. And we've seen some of our clients we deal with that they're looking at now in their next ALM run, they'll be making changes to their assumptions, which will change their results to suddenly bring them into compliance of policy. And examiners are certainly going to be going, you know what? You just change your assumptions so you could get in policy. That, I think that's going to be an issue this year.
2: I'm, actually, I want to take just a minute to talk about it. It might run things a little bit long and it's not related to the letter, but I think it's valid. So if you go at historically, they wanted those non-maturity deposit assumptions to be built over multiple business cycles. And so Cardi did that. Now what we're seeing is share growth is negative in those checking accounts, money markets. It's flowing into CD funds. And now examiners are telling credit unions, hey, we want you to update your assumptions just based on these short-term trends. If you look at what's going on with rate sensitivity factors, most of the credit unions, they haven't raised their core deposit rates. They haven't raised rates on those regular shares. They haven't really done anything. To checking accounts that did pay interest rates. Money markets, they've moved them a little, but a lot of credit unions haven't moved them at all. So when credit unions update their assumptions, they end up lowering their rate sensitivity factors because that's in truth what it was. They had conservative assumptions. Examiner said, update your assumptions. Now it makes the shares a little bit longer because rate sensitivity factors are lower and it reflects the credit union's behavior. And Decay rates, what you're finding, and we see this with our clients, a lot of them were excessively high. And they do the studies based on what they have. And yes, some of them have lost shares this year. They end up lowering their decay rates too and making those shares longer. So now the examiners, we start out with, we want assumptions based over multiple cycles because we don't like what's happening. Now they say, update your assumptions based on short-term assumptions well those assumptions are actually better for the credit, so the examiners don't like that either
1: so we they don't like get the reality we the don't way. like the re- yeah
2: we don't like the reality yeah, so it's
1: never impacted it the way we thought it might so that miracle sure. what you asked for you just might get
2: yeah i think it's interesting and it, it was interesting just to see examiners ask for that because it was pretty self-evident that that's the way the math is going to come out, that those rate sensitivity factors are going to get lower because creditings haven't changed rate. And so the examiners want it both ways. That's why I think creditings they need to be willing to push back on the examiners a little bit. And the whole point of the NCUA's supervisory NAV test was not to have this discussion about core deposits. And then they delve into it anyway, and it doesn't go the way they want, which I find somewhat interesting yes yeah. yeah, so they've lost
1: sight of the reason we did neb and, and as you both were talking i took a bunch of notes and it reminded me of some other conversations we've had but we went through three three black swan events essentially the pandemic 500 600 uh Increase to Fed funds, 500 basis point increase. And then Silicon Valley Bank, which rocked the world on how money moves. All of those individually could be considered to be black swan events. And Todd, as you're talking about NEV and what it's used for and what it can be misused for, and what else you need to consider? It reminds me, and I might not get this quite right, but you can correct me on it. It reminds me of something you said once where xu shows a 300 basis point shock because it triggers all of the things that are built into those bonds. It makes the covenants kind of explode so you see what you've got. And now we've already had 500 basis points. And then to then rely on NEV and say, okay, well, is it going to go up another 300 basis points when we've already been fine? We've already triggered everything. Any Anything there you want to touch on?
2: Well, I've, I've always believed that NEV is a good indicator of risk, but not the sole way to manage your balance sheet you're making assumptions and doing cash flows, if you're a real estate lender, they're over a 30 year period, so I think they're a good indicator of direction of risk. And certainly, when you get down to negative NAV numbers, you're probably it's an indication of trouble. But I've always been a believer too that this income simulation and this other piece is important. And yeah, creating cash flows, the the 300 basis points was to trigger all the options. And I'm pretty sure we've triggered all the options on a credit union's balance sheet. The real estate loans they're extending out is as far as they're going to. What you don't capture in the models and which you're also seeing in the optionality is this whole inflation rate and the fact that disposable incomes are not growing. That's triggering and altering some of the people's behaviors, not in favor of our credit unions in any way, shape or form. So I just think it's interesting that NEV is important, but those income simulations of how you're managing that interest rate, net interest margin, and how you're holding up with liquidity and capital is every bit as important as that NEV number. And I think NCUA is losing sight of that sometimes because we see it in exam reports. We read, there is this criticism where NEV is going and there's not even a mention their income simulations or liquidity numbers. I mean, they're just totally silent. And so it's an important number, it's a good indicator, but relying solely on now without looking at other factors is not the way to analyze your interest rate risk. And part of
1: the challenge too, that CUA, and not that this is an excuse, but I, I think back to when we all started and we took examiner level one, two, three, four, and five, and I remember any time a discussion went into ALM, it was like, yeah, oh, we're, t- we're, we're, we're going to handle that in the last class. We're going to handle that in the last class. And built up all that anticipation of that last class being real good where they explained it to me. And I remember walking out of there, scratching my head, saying, they said they would answer it in the last class. And they didn't, which led to there being some good. We hired better people, experts in that area. Then you layer on top of that, since the 0- 0- 0- 8- 0- 8 economic, the great recession, Half of NCUA staff is new since then, maybe even more, but at least half of the staff. So they've not really gone through any of these issues. And NEV, income simulations, all those things are nuanced and they're stretched thin. Uh, and I think that's leading to some of these over, over-reliant. It's like way they had CMOs and it was thumbs up or it's thumbs down. The NEV, it's the be all, end all, and we're seeing a little bit of that in what what's happening out there. And Fred is you just need to push back and try and make sure they're being treated fairly on these, on this issue.
2: That's probably true. I hadn't really thought about the new examiners. Cause the other thing you see with the new examiners, and I'm sure I was this way too, is they tend to be risk averse they're scared of making a mistake. And I think with experience and Steve and I and yourself we were all problem case officers and you have to take a little bit of risk to fix the troubled credit union. And so we're probably a little bit more accepting of different risk levels than a lot of the newer examiners are. And that, that just comes with experience and it comes with that whole total analysis process. And right. That's what we see maybe lacking sometimes is our examiners and our clients, they're picking out one single fact and they'll pull that out. And what they write in their reports is factually true, but they're missing the whole picture and everything is used out of context. And that's when credites need to push back a little bit with their examiners is, wait, look at the whole picture here. Yes, what you said is true, but we don't run any financial institution by one number. There's a focus on member service here. It, managing risk
1: takes a lot of different numbers and especially yeah especially in this environment especially in this environment that was a great conversation on that possibly and and this is i think in the past i've cut this podcast into and i think i might do that this might be a natural spot uh where we do it and and so we discuss credit risk number one liquidity risk number two We jumped down to number five, which was interest rate risk because that, but but the reality is that's because liquidity risk and interest rate risk are so intertwined. Uh, And this is where I did cut the podcast in two. I want to thank you for listening to part one of NCUA's priority letters, and you can stay tuned for part two, which will discuss consumer financial protection and a few others of NCUA's priorities from their priority letters. Thanks again for listening. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors.